You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. The Archaeology Podcast Network is sponsored by Codify, a California benefit corporation. Visit Codify at www.codifi.com. Welcome to Heritage Voices, Episode 4, Climate Change and the Nuclear Legacy in the Marshall Islands with Tina Steggy. We had some technological difficulties with recording this episode. Our recording software malfunctioned while recording, and so you may notice some audio audio issues. And I've, I've tried my best to edit them out, but we decided basically that the topic of this podcast was too important and the, the interview itself was too great not to share. So... We are providing this episode for you today, which we hope will inspire you for the upcoming Science March, especially since it features a Marshallese woman scientist, anthropologist in this case. And we decided, though, to do a follow-up episode, A, because of the audio difficulties, but also just because there was so many great things to talk about with Dr. Jenny Newell and Tina Steggy again on climate change, more on the, the ethnographic project that Tina talks about in this episode, as well as some other museum-related topics, like how, how, does, how do museums help communities who are facing their homelands literally being underwater to grapple with that change? What can they, they protect and, and help them adjust to their new lives? So, I hope that you will enjoy this episode, but if, if it's too much for you, you can switch over to that one. I hope that you'll enjoy both, though. I think they're both worth it. And, and know that we are working on the audio and hope to just keep getting it better and better for you guys, since I know we've had some issues in the first couple. So, thank you for your patience, and I really do hope you enjoy. Today I have Tina Steggy with me. She was raised in the Marshall Islands and she received her BA in Sociology from Princeton and an MA in Anthropology from the Université d'Aix-en-Provence, excuse my pronunciation there. She also worked for the Republic of the Marshall Islands Embassy in Washington, D.C. and she spoke to the UN General Assembly in 2015 on the commemoration of the International Day for the Total Elimination of Nuclear Weapons. She's currently a partner in Martina Corporation, an international liaison for the Marshallese Educational Initiative, both of which bring awareness to and attempt to address issues facing the Marshall Islands, among others. So welcome, Tina. I'm really excited to have you. Thanks, Jessica. I'm happy to be here. So um, would you mind first just talking a little bit about what got you into this field? I mean, obviously you came from the Marshall Islands and then you went to the U.S. or went to um, the mainland to study at Princeton. What what was that transition like for you and what, what got you into this particular field? Well, I actually left the Marshalls to go to school, high school in Hawaii and then came to the mainland for college. And my background is that I'm, my mother is Marshallese. My father is actually American. He went out to the Marshall Islands as a Peace Corps volunteer and never really left. And so I guess I've grown up all my life interested in cultural issues and differences because I am people, what we call, I call a Habsi half Marshallese, half American. So growing up in the Marshalls, I had this American half and noticed differences. Um, When I went to high school in Hawaii, I saw sort of, again, that's a real melting pot of different cultures and had that experience and then then came to the mainland. And so, and then spent a lot of time going back and forth between the U.S. and the Marshalls. And so I was just always aware of and interested in the different ways people see things because of different cultural lenses. 
I think that that's why I was, I got into this, this field. Mm -hmm. So was that, uh, sounds like then maybe, I mean, so you had Hawaii as an in-between, which seems like it would be kind of a natural in-between. And I know you talked a lot at the conference about how there's more of a, a Marshallese community there. When I was um, in high school, there wasn't really one at all. There's just, just, just a few of us. Now there's quite a big community really exploded in the last 10 to 15 years. So that's been interesting for me as well, just to see the difference now as compared to when I was there as a high schooler. And I lived with a, a family um, and went to school so even there weren't relatives for me to stay with there. But now I can't walk down the street without running into somebody. So a question that that brought up for me, what you were just talking about was, so currently two of the really big focuses of your work, it seems like, are climate change and the nuclear legacy. And in the Marshall Islands. Mm -hmm. And just curious on how that shifted, that conversation shifted, whether there was a conversation, first of all, when you were a child on the Marshall Islands and how that conversation has shifted through time and through these different places that you've lived. On the nuclear legacy, there's been a big shift, I think, in the Marshalls. When I was growing up, at least in my memory, there, there wasn't much information about the nuclear testing period, and it wasn't something that was disseminated widely in the population. I mean, we knew that there had been nuclear testing, and there were certain populations within the larger Marshallese population that were identified as the most affected, or you know, people said, used the word poison. But it wasn't something that we learned about in school, or that I really had a lot of knowledge about beyond sort of informal conversations that I would hear as a kid. And I really learned about it and started doing research into it in college. And then, and, oh, go ahead. Oh, just really quick, I just realized before we get too far into it, maybe we should explain really quick what exactly we're referring to when we're talking about the, the nuclear legacy in the Marshall Islands. So we're talking about the testing by the United States of 67 nuclear bombs on two atolls in the Marshall Islands. Bikini, which almost everybody knows that word. It's actually a Marshallese word. And Eniwetak. And those tests went through, it was from post-World War II through 1958 when it finally ended. And when we talk about the nuclear legacy, we're talking about how, although the tests themselves ended, there's a legacy of the, the impacts of those tests that continues on through today. And people in the Marshalls still live with that. So yeah, I, I really started learning that history in depth in college because I decided to, to do it and then continued on in my working life digging into it more and working directly with the people and the communities who were feeling the worst effects of the testing. And is that something you mentioned earlier, people referring to certain islands as being more poisoned? Is that something that comes with stigma or... Yeah, is, is there a stigma related to having nuclear testing on your island I think there the was today. my memory as a kid is that there was a stigma and I think that was related directly to the fact that all of us were so bereft of any kind of facts you know we just didn't know mm -hmm. we were ignorant and had no idea what it all meant and so yes there was a stigma I think that that's really eased now as People have learned more about what the effects of the testing were, what they mean for the different communities. Different communities that were most affected have advocated for themselves and been able to get some compensation to help mm -hmm. 
so I, I do feel like that stigma has really lifted as we've gotten more information. Mm-hmm. So is, would you say that that conversation today in the Marshall Islands is, is very different? It's much more informed. We have events that comm- commemorate the testing period. Well, we have, we call it Nuclear Remembrance Day. And this is done every year. And we have people learning about the testing period in school, in the elementary and high school. And we have communities who have become very powerful advocates for themselves. And I think there's a respect that goes with that. So it is a, I think it's a very different conversation when it comes to what, what it means for us, both as a larger Marshallese community, but in those specific communities that were most affected as well. Mm-hmm. And one thing, so Christine and I met first at the, the High Plains Society for Applied Anthropology Conference. And one thing that you talked about when you were there was this very conflicted relationship with the United States. Can you talk a little bit about that aspect? So, you know, if you go to the Marshalls, you an American, and you, you know, touch down in any of the islands, including Inuitak, where some of these tests were done, you will you will be greeted with a great deal of friendliness. That's part of our part of our culture. It's a part of our culture that I'm I feel you know very proud of. Actually, we are. A very welcoming people. There's also a history with the U.S. being seen as a liberator after the World War. That people still, it's very, it's it's very um, real and present to them even today. Particularly the older generation. The end of World War II, it had, life had become very hard under the Japanese, and people in some places were starving, and Americans came in on big ships with a lot of free food and set up this trust territory government, provided public education and the Peace Corps came in and people had some very warm relationships with Peace Corps volunteers. Obviously, you know, my dad (laughs) was a volunteer. My mom married him, many other expats like him in the Marshalls. And also Marshallese at that time started to, to travel to the U.S. for school, for jobs. And so that's the very positive side. Uh, on the negative side, really, the nuclear testing is at the top of the list. I mean, it, it, was, it was just a travesty. Uh, and one that really, the, the true impact of it hasn't been dealt with. So, yeah, I guess that's, that's the uh, heart of the conflict. But that conflict doesn't spill mm-hmm. over into the way the way people treat or think of America, I think, as a whole. I think they still think of that relationship as a as a close one and it's more a feeling of betrayal by your, you know, family or your close friend when mm-hmm. you know, people don't get the care that they need for, for whatever cancer that they have or they don't get compensation, or their community is, you know, put back on an island that's still contaminated. That doesn't translate into revolt. It translates into a lot of sadness and a lot of, a a real deep sense of betrayal, I think. Hmm. Well, and that is one of the big things that your work has been fighting for, is, is for recognition from the U.S. of this nuclear legacy and first, can you talk a little bit about, I mean, I suppose you already started getting into that, but why that recognition is so important. And then also what you would say, you know, when, when people are looking for recognition of past events, there's always this attitude of, of why can't you just get over this? So what would you, what would you say to those people who, who just want to know why the, the Marshall Islands just well, can't? get over this radiation is something that contaminates an environment for tens of thousands of years we literally can't 
get over it. It's, it's, it's going to be there and it's there now and it's going to be there in, in the soil for hundreds and thousands of years to come. People being moved away from their home to an entirely different island and not being able to go back for ever, you, you, you don't get over that. I think what you can do is adapt. And Marshallese are really adaptable. And despite all the challenges, I think have done a pretty amazing job of of adapting and learning to survive in really harsh conditions and despite harsh circumstances. And the U.S. has done some things to to compensate or provide for Marshallese affected by the testing, but none of those things have been with the idea of actually making Marshall Islanders whole again or somehow better able to survive as a community. I think many of those things were a lot of ex-gratia payments or a trust fund set up here or there, but very little thought or put, put into addressing sort of the issue holistically. And the thing is that it's the kind of issue that really impacts a community in every way. Uh, just as one very small example, we, we have no cancer care in the Marshall Islands. We've never had an oncologist from the time the tests ended to now. We've had a lot of doctors who have come through, um, many of them funded or paid for by the United States, who have uh, done you know, some medical care and a lot of research. But we've never had an oncologist who is going to, you know, when somebody gets breast cancer, there's no option except to leave the Marshall Islands. And if they do leave the Marshall Islands, unless they're part of a you know, population that the U.S. identified as affected, which was like a couple hundred people, the U.S. is not going to pay for their care. I mean, those are just enormous gaps. They're... they're they're sort of, the way I see it is the U.S. has responded, but it's been, I don't know, I use the word ad hoc, but it's been a bit here and a bit there, but never anything that really responds to the fact that this was a devastating period that changed people's lives entirely. And so an adequate response would be one that looks at a people entirely and you know, all the kinds of needs that arise as a result. And not just throw some money at it here or clean one island over there. And those are the sorts of responses that that we've had. And they just leave these huge gaps and, and so many people have fallen through those gaps and not gotten what they need to to survive. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. So just to give people a little bit of context there, you mentioned that there's there's never been an oncologist in the Marshall Islands. How what kind of distance well, or how long would it take somebody to get to, to a place where they had one? Honolulu, which is a five hour flight, about twenty five hundred miles. The flight costs about round trip, it's like twelve hundred dollars. 
just to get to the U.S. And then we all know how much healthcare costs mm-hmm. once you get here. Um, so whether or not you can even, I mean, once you get the, the plane ticket and then right. you get here, whether you can afford to actually get care, it's a whole nother issue. And fighting for healthcare is something, you know, our access to healthcare is something that is something that Marshallese now are doing, trying to make sure they have adequate access to healthcare here in the U.S. And that's one thing that you mentioned before and that you mentioned also at the, the High Plains conference was that it seems like in everything, the Marshallese are really fighting their their own way and making things happen for themselves. There was the whole mm-hmm. idea uh, related to climate change more of we're not drowning. And I think a lot of people expect this whole that that whole idea the traditional idea of the white savior coming in and and fixing everything for people where you guys are presenting a very different yeah, well, face to I, that yeah, kind of story I would say that can you certainly on the nuclear issue and on the climate change as well the idea of well that's not my been my experience at, at all Marshallese have fought have had to fight tooth and nail for what they've achieved um with regard to the nuclear legacy and they've they've gone to court they've walked the halls of congress endlessly lobbying to try to educate members about the impacts of the testing they've gone into their communities where they live here in the u.s to educate others so at least on the nuclear issue, I see Marshallese as being very strong advocates for themselves. Certainly that became much more the case after we started getting information through declassified documents about what in fact had happened. Before then, we were telling our stories, but they could be dismissed as anecdotal. But then these documents in the 90s started being declassified Again, as a result right. of a lot of advocacy work on um, the part of Marshallese, but Marshallese working together with other victims of radiation exposure, like atomic veterans groups and different energy workers who were all having the same, same, same issues. And so those document, declassified documents came out and they really bore up the truth of what we had been talking about. And then with the climate change, I see it as even more so where we're sort of out in, I think, out in front of the issues. Instead of, you know, with the nuclear testing, it felt like, again, we were just always trying to to unearth all the, what had been hid behind so many secrets. On the climate change issue, I feel like it's different in that, although it's still a much this, similar in that it's scientific and a lot of people don't understand the science and I will put myself in, I'm not a scientist in terms of my, I'm not a climate scientist. And so understanding all the science of it can be daunting, but I feel like there are a lot of Marshallese who are in front of this issue as advocates and able to work with, with scientists who in this case are, it's not a secret. It's pretty much agreed upon and out there in the world that this is happening and Right. Uh, humans are the cause of it. So it's a little bit different in that in that sense. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I feel like when you look at climate change advocacy efforts, you always see Pacific Islanders really being at the forefront because obviously mm-hmm. you are the ones that mm-hmm. have the most dire consequences or the most immediate consequences that you're looking at but just that spirit that you talked about about not not just sitting there and and letting it happen and not just taking it as it comes but fighting and doing whatever you could to save your homeland it's very um, admirable and i think it's rightly or wrongly that's associated with the nu- our nuclear testing history of Marshallese mm-hmm. as sort of victims of this horrible and devastating bomb that were 
detonated mm-hmm. in our like we had nothing to do with it. We were just victimized by it. And that narrative always bothered me. I mean, it's maybe right. partly the fact that I'm, you know, generation after. But to me, looking at all that work that the people before me had done, despite all this secrecy, you know, and all that advocacy work that they went out and they they didn't let it stop them from telling their stories. I never saw that as victimization. And there's also this narrative with climate change that Pacific Islanders are these, you know, we're just going to be drowned and the waves are going to overwhelm us and there's nothing that we can do. And yet again, it's like this way of the outside just disempowering people. And it's, again, not at all my experience. It's just not what I see. I see people out there advocating and getting their voices heard and being at the forefront of the issue, even though population-wise, we're we're really so, there's so few of us compared to some of these much bigger nations. And yet we're some of the loudest voices. So, yeah, it's... My experience as a Pacific Islander and as a Marshallese is that people are very strong and have a lot of knowledge and a lot of leadership on both the climate change issue now, but also on the nuclear, the nuclear issues. So can we get a little bit more in depth about what those efforts look like on the ground in the Marshall Islands? Well, on the ground, you have, I don't know, international stars. <laughs> you know, we have, we have people going on CNN, certainly our, our new president. She's um, actually the first female mm-hmm. to be elected president in the Pacific region. So there's, she's the first female head of state. So we're pretty, pretty proud of that. We feel like... Nice. We, we beat the United States to the punch, so to speak, <laughs> by a few months. This is Jessica. I'm jumping in real quick. Obviously, this episode was recorded in October, <laughs> so before the election. She's been on CNN. She's was one of the first, we were one of the first countries to ratify the Paris Agreement. I believe we were number three, in fact, to ratify the Paris Agreement. And... We have uh, Tony DeBroom, uh, who's our ambassador for climate change, and he was really integral to the effort to get 1.5 in as a target into that Paris Agreement, at least acknowledge as, as something we can mm-hmm. try to achieve to only 1.5 degrees Celsius in terms of an increase. In temperature, and it's it's an extremely ambitious target. There, the w- way things are going now, mm-hmm. we're nowhere close to 1.5. We're nowhere close even to two. And for a long time, the idea was laughable that anybody working on that Paris Agreement would agree to 1.5. But as a result of efforts by Pacific Island leaders, Tony DeBroom, but also a lot of other Pacific Island leaders, and also a social media campaign, which really was born in the Marshall Islands by our, our youth and led by one of our most active champions, Kathy Chetnell Kitchener. That 1.5 target became acceptable and written in to the agreement. So I think that's just, it is just an example of how we're really at the forefront. And and Kathy, she was the one that recited the pretty famous poem that's gone viral at, where was that? The UN in New York during the climate, the climate conference that they had some months before Paris. Mm. So actually it was a year before Paris where... So she, it was a two-day event where people from all over the world came together, and there was a huge climate march here in New York, which actually my, my family and I all participated in. 
So it was a really exciting weekend. And then she she opened it. Her, she and Leonardo DiCaprio opened. No big deal. Uh, <laughs> yeah, opened that event. And it's a it's a really proud moment for me, but it was just a proud moment for all of us. Everybody was so excited. And to see, you know, one of our one of our own people, not only by all the folks in the room, all these leaders, all these, you know, presidents and heads of state. But that poem ended up going viral. So, you know, all over the world, people got to hear what it meant. And I Mm -hmm. thought she did a really wonderful job tying our experience Mm -hmm. to the rest of the world. So it's a poem that can speak not only to Marshallese people, but to anyone, really, who is facing climate change challenges. And if it's all right with you, I'd like to mm-hmm. put mm-hmm. a copy of both of those poems, that one, and she has another really fantastic poem called Tell Them, right? Yeah. Into the show notes so that anyone listening can go and, and hear them. I like to say when I talk about, especially um, Tell Them, that it's like a piece of my soul she's is able to capture in that poem. Yeah. Hello. It's a powerful one. Mm-hmm. And they're both very visually beautiful poems as well, so worth checking out the the YouTube videos. But Kathy Jetnell-Kishner has also graciously allowed us to share the poems themselves on these podcasts. So this episode will feature Tell Them, and the next episode, which is a follow-up episode to this episode, with Tina Stegi. And then also with Jenny Newell, who is currently with the Australian Museum in Sydney, and previously with the American Museum of Natural History and the British Museum. The two of them will be talking about museums and climate change, as well as the ethnographic project that Tina talks about in this episode that they worked on together. And that episode will feature the poem that went viral after the UN Climate Summit, Dear Montefilipanum. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Okay, so we've been talking about what the Republic of the Marshall Islands has been doing on an international scale. And now I'd really like to hear more about this project that you were just working on with the American Museum of Natural History in the Marshall Islands. I wanted to sort of, if you think of these things as sort of a circle inward, come out, come from outside and come in to this more in the center to see what was happening at a grassroots level in local communities, how people were really just, you know, individuals and families were responding to climate change. And so I joined forces with a couple of anthropologists who are at the American Museum of Natural History. Jenny Newell, who's a Pacific curator, well, curator in the Pacific Department there, and a postdoctoral fellow, Sergio. And we we went out to the Marshalls for, they were there for about a month and I was there for a bit longer. And did some work in the capital in Madro, and then also spent a week in Namaruk, which is a community of about 400 people uh, on an outer island, which in the Marshalls simply means that, you know, it's 
it's a lot, the, the lifestyle is a lot closer to the land and the sea. So it's not, it's not in the center. There is electricity, but it's actually all solar powered. People live still fairly subsistence, you know, they're, they're fishing every day for their food. And it was just a really wonderful week. And we went to that community because it done a lot of work on its own to think about what the future holds and what they can do as a community to prepare themselves and to, and to thrive in spite of the challenges. So we just wanted to look at that and see why it had been successful in doing that and see how maybe their experiences could translate both to other parts of the Marshalls, but maybe, you know, the Pacific as a whole. Again, going back to this idea of what, 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 what can we do for ourselves to meet these challenges? Yes, we're going to need help from the outside. There's no question. But we need to know for ourselves, you know, what are our priorities? What do we want to save or care for or ensure lives on? We need to know, we need to be able to answer those questions for ourselves so that any help that comes from outside can be effective. So I know that you basically just finished up field work not too long ago on this project, but I'm curious if there's any takeaways that you could already see from, from the field work. That social cohesion is really kind of the, I don't think, I think the starting point for any discussion of resilience in the face of climate change and community cohesion. So, you know, in this community, if there's a problem, if you, if you have a drought, and there had been a drought that had just mm-hmm. ended, there was a, because of El Nino, there was a terrible drought in the Marshall from 2015 to 2016. And during the drought time, you ask people, well, so what did you do if you ran out of water? And you're like, well, we go to our neighbor's house and they share their water with us. I mean, it's, it's such a basic thing, but it's it's why it's so important. If you don't have those community connections, mm-hmm. you can't survive. And I think that that very much applies regardless of where where you are in the world. So that, that was powerful. I mean, I knew that that was important, but it just drove it home. And it drove home what I think is one of the most powerful aspects of Marshallese culture that we still have, which is that you know, our families and our communities are still very much connected. And we need to, to support that and ensure that that continues so that we can respond to a challenge like climate change. Like again, I, as I said, it's, it's so basic, but just so important. And they, you know, they had done other, the reason that they had been able to do other more specific things, like, you know, they'd done a lot of shore planting mm-hmm. or plants along the shore to, to shore up against coastal erosion. All of those are, those are community efforts. You, you can't do that unless the community is close and organized and has clear and respected leadership. These, these are all, these take manpower they they don't have you know a local they have mm-hmm. a local government but it's not like i mean if they're going to plant along the shore it's because individuals within the community uh, you know say yes i'm going to help them do that it's, it's volunteering so right and that that to me brings up what i've always thought of as an important point within anthropology you know there's always this focus on what other communities lack so mm-hmm. You know, if you're looking at Latin America, oh, my God, they're so poor and they don't have any resources and they need our help if anything is going to get better. And instead, there's that asset-based community development approach, which is looking at, no, what are the good things that are already happening in this community? How are people able to be resilient and how what is helping them to succeed and focusing on that and using that to empower people and and solve problems. Mm-hmm. Focusing on what's lacking is is fairly common in the Pacific as well. I don't know so much on Latin America, but sort of there's a lot of conversations about why why is education? Why, you know, why don't you have more 
of mm. people with certain degrees or, you know, you, you don't have enough, whatever it is, people in the trades and you can't, you can't accomplish this. And yet I don't, the thing right. is I, I get all of that, but at the same time, we have a, a society and a culture which has managed to survive on islands that are basically sand and with, you know, the spits of sand surrounded by endless and endless amounts of ocean. And, you know, we've been out there for a few thousand years mm -hmm. and survived. We've survived Germans and then the Japanese and then the American. And we're still kicking, so... Not to mention getting there in the first place. Right. Right. I just... I just... I feel like in the sort of international narrative, it can really get drowned out, the people who you're supposedly helping, who are saying, like, wait a minute. You know, we have a lot to be proud of, and thank you. We do need help in certain areas, but... It doesn't work unless, you know, that help mm -hmm. not only reflects our needs, but is in fact directed by our needs, right? It's, and we know what those are, and we are specific about how any sort of outside aid will be used to, to support right. what's good in our society. And what's good in our society might be something that an outside eye doesn't consider good but it's been you know it but it's been something that right. has clearly you know supported our society for thousands of uh, thousands of years so it has to be some good in it right right mm -hmm. these amazing navigators who could navigate without a compass or any modern tools and so many of our people still use canoes and make canoes but it really had it really died down after right. boats with engines were introduced and fuel and that knowledge was on the wane and it's really having a resurgence, especially as people are realizing like with the cost of fuel and just the unsustainability of having to depend on, on ships that are powered by fossil fuels that going back to canoes is just it just makes a lot of sense it's not only makes sense economically but culturally educationally just the making of a canoe requires so many skills and so how do we support that like when we're talking about sort of climate change adaptation how can we bring in or whatever whatever flows in to help with climate change can we can we direct that to support our canoe culture and is that something that an outside would say, yeah, that's the way you should adapt, <laughs> you know? Those are the kinds of things that I don't know, I'm, I guess I'm, I'm talking about and thinking about when we're talking about how do we, how do we meet this, this new challenge in a way that also, in, you know, reflects our culture and what makes us, a, you know, a proud people. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when I make that point about... Mm -hmm. focusing on the positive mm -hmm. um, already within the community. That's not to negate the very real circumstances um, and structural barriers that have been put in your way. I mean, literally, if, if the ocean's rising around you, that's not, that's, that's something very tangible. It was really highlighted for me in this a quote from the mayor of Namrik, which is the island where I spent some time this summer, where he was saying, um, I'm just going to paraphrase, but he basically said, you know, I thought at first it was all over, climate change, it just meant it was all over, but now I know, you know, there are things we can do and, you know, we can survive for at least three to five years, we can survive. And I just I always think about that because it's like, man, three to five years is really not a very long time. So on the one hand, you could say that that's quite depressing. But on the other hand, I think it's it's so realistic and yet, I don't know about hopeful, but empowered. Because here he is saying that that's, you know, I'm looking for now, I'm looking at five years out and I'm going to work for that. I'm not 
you know, I'm not giving up regardless of the fact that, you know, I'm not, not sure in five years what's going to happen, but that doesn't mean that I'm giving up on my home or I'm giving up on my culture. I'm giving up on my neighbors and no, instead he's out there planning to plant more trees and working hard to, you know, support a pearl farm, which is bringing jobs into the community and being awarded the Equator Prize in Brazil a few years back. So I don't know. I that's that's I sort of take my cue from from that guy, you know. <laughs> If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you check out that follow-up episode with Tina Steggy again and Dr. Jenny Newell of the Australian Museum. It's a really, really great one, so don't miss it. Also, be sure to check out the YouTube video in the show notes by the American Museum of Natural History that shows a video of the work that Tina and Jenny are talking about in these episodes. So check it out. It's really great to have the the visuals associated with, with everything they're talking about. And it just adds so much. So if you like this episode, definitely check out and share that video as well. And to finish us out today, here is Kathy Jetnell Kitchener with Tell Them. I prepared the package for my friends in the States. The dangling earrings woven into half moons, black pearls glinting like an eye in a storm of tight spirals. The baskets, sturdy, also woven. Brown cowrie shell shiny, intricate mandalas shaped by calloused fingers. Inside the basket, I write a message. Wear these earrings to parties, to classes and meetings, to the corner store, the grocery store, and while riding the bus. Store jewelry, incense, copper coins, and curling letters like this one in this basket. And when others ask you where you got this, you tell them they're from the Marshall Islands. Show them where it is on a map. Tell them we are a proud people toasted dark brown as the carved ribs of a tree stump. Tell them we are descendants of the finest navigators in the world. Tell them our islands were dropped from a basket carried by a giant. Tell them we are the hollow hulls of canoes as fast as the wind slicing through the Pacific Sea. We are wood shavings and drying pandanus leaves and sikipiros at kemims. Tell them we are the sweet harmonies of mothers, aunties, sisters, songs late into night. Tell them we are whispered prayers, the breath of God, a crown of fuchsia flowers encircling Antimeri's white sea foam hair. Tell them we are styrofoam cups of Kool-Aid red, waiting patiently for the Ilomid. We are papaya golden sunsets bleeding into a glittering open sea. We are skies uncluttered, majestic and sweeping in their landscape. We are the ocean, terrifying and regal in its power. Tell them we are dusty rubber slippers swiped from concrete doorsteps. We are the ripped seams and the broken door handles of taxis. We are sweaty hands shaking another sweaty hand in heat. Tell them we are days and nights hotter than anything you can imagine. Tell them we are little girls with braids, cartwheeling beneath the rain. We are shards of broken beer bottles burrowed beneath fine white sand. We are children flinging like rubber bands across a road clogged with chugging cars. Tell them we only have one road. And after all this, tell them about the water how we have seen it rising, flooding across our cemeteries, gushing over our sea walls, and crashing against our homes. Tell them what it's like to see the entire ocean level with the land. Tell them we are afraid. Tell them we don't know of the politics or the science, but we see what is in our own backyard. Tell them some of us are old fishermen who believe that God made us a promise. Tell them some of us are a little bit more skeptical of God. But most importantly, Tell them we don't want to leave. We've never wanted to leave. And that we are nothing without our islands. Thanks for 
listening to the Heritage Voices podcast. You can find show notes at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash Heritage Voices. Please subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or the Google Music Store. Also, if you like the show, please share with your friends or write us a review. If you have any questions, comments, or show suggestions, please reach out to me at jessica at livingheritageanthropology.org, or you can find me on Facebook through Living Heritage Anthropology or on Twitter at Living Heritage A. As always, thank you to Lyle Blanqua and Jason Nez for their collaboration on our incredible logo. This show is produced by Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle and edited by Chris Sims. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business. Like that, let's put it online and see what happens stage. And the site is live. That we opened a store and need a fast checkout stage. Thanks, you're all set. That count it up and ship it around the globe stage. This one's going to Thailand. And that, wait, did we just hit a million orders stage? Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for your $1 a month trial at shopify.com slash listen.